this, not this coming Sunday, but Sunday, June 5th is our next Sunday Artist. And what Sunday Artist is, it's Sunday Bread. We meet together for a meal. So you can sign up for that. It's going to be at the Childress's house on June 5th after church. We're going to head over there and share a meal together, and it's going to be a really good time. With that, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95, as that will be our text today, and I'm going to switch microphones here. You got me, Mike? So we will be in Psalm 95, as I said, and uh, taking a little break from Second Thess- Thessalonians. Pastor Mike gets the morning off. So we are going to, you get to hear from me today. I'm Pastor Justice, if we haven't met. Uh, this sermon is going to be sort of a follow-up to my sermon from the Foundations Conference on Congregational Singing. In that sermon, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, in Colossians chapter 3, and various other texts to answer the question, why do we sing, how do we sing, and what do we sing? If you missed that, I encourage you to go back sometime and listen to it, as I think it's an important foundation to what we do together in the singing part of our worship service, and it will also help give some context to the sermon today, as I'm not going to focus on that part so much. But what I want us to see in this psalm this morning is that there is an internal and external component to our worship of God. So we're going to go ahead and read Psalm 95 together. Verse 1 says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, They shall not enter my rest. So what do we see at a glance in this psalm? Uh, We see a command to sing. There's a command to sing. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. And as I shared at the Foundations Conference, there are at least 50 direct commands commands in Scripture to sing. And here we, we are told to sing. And this is an act, an external act that we do in worship. We sing. We lift our voices. But it doesn't just say to sing. It says to sing for joy. To sing for joy. The Greek word here um, means to overcome or to be overcome or to give a ringing cry 
in joy. So this idea here is that we have an internal joy, so much so that we're almost overcome. And so we sing. We sing. That's an external. We sing because of that joy. We have worship boiling up in our heart, but it doesn't stay locked in our heart. It overflows in our voice singing joyfully to the Lord. And in the second part of verse 1, we see the same thing. We are to shout joyfully. The Greek here means to shout, to raise a sound, a shout in triumph, to shout in applause, to make a joyful noise. So again, that's coming from the joy in our heart, right, the internal, and it leads to an external expression of that. And here, an acceptable and an encouraged expression is a shout for joy. Our heart is excited, and so we shout joyfully. We are singing to the Lord, it says, we're shouting to the Lord, and we're coming into His presence. And it says in, in verse 2 that we come into His presence, and that's what we are doing this morning, and that's what we do whenever we come together for worship on Sundays. We are coming together into the presence of the Lord. We're coming to meet with the Lord. We are coming to meet, it says, with the rock of our salvation. How awesome is that, church? We're meeting with the rock of our salvation. How thankful should we be that we can come and meet with Him? How thankful should we be that He saved us? That should be overflowing. The word thanksgiving here means an extension of the hand or adoration. It could mean a sacrifice of praise or a thanks offering. We are expressing the thankfulness from our hearts with action. That's what we are called to do when we meet together. Internal from the heart, external in action. So we're told to shout joyfully to him with psalms, it says. Literally, it is saying, shout joyfully to the Lord with songs accompanied by instruments. That's what it's saying. Shout joyfully to the Lord with songs accompanied by instruments. That's what we just did this morning. And the psalmist then reminds us why we should do this. He says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So why are we to praise the Lord, church? Because there is no one like him. There is no one like him. He is above all others. There is no corner of the universe that is out of his sight or out of his reach. There is nothing beyond his control and power. Who is like him? Church, who is like the Lord our God? Amen. No one. No one is like the Lord our God. In the ancient world, different pagan gods kind of covered different geographical areas. It'd be like, this is the god of this area, and this is the god of this area. Or they had different cosmic regions or different aspects of life that they were the, the god over. And the psalmist is saying, no, our God is not like that. Our God's not limited to a certain area of the world. Our God's not limited to a certain area of life. He created all. He created everything 
in the earth and in the heavens, and they are all his. There is nowhere that God does not have all power and all authority. His power and authority reaches everywhere in the universe and every single part of your life. So, the question then is, who is like the Lord our God? You already said no one. Does the president have the power that God has? He doesn't. Does the Russian president? Does the CDC? No. Do we have that kind of power and authority? No, we don't. Pastors don't. John Piper, John MacArthur, they don't have that kind of power and authority. So who is great like our God? No one. And who is worthy of worship like our God is? No one. America is not. Sports teams and athletes are not. Nature is not. Social media and Netflix and money, those things, no. They are not worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. None of those things compare to him. No one is like him. He is above all. He deserves all worship, reverence, honor, and awe. Not those things, not those people. And that is what the psalmist is reminding of us here. He's reminding us who God is. But so often, church, I think we need to hear this because those things and those people command our worship. May this not be so. God is greater than all, and so because he is, the psalmist says, sing joyfully, shout joyfully, come and praise him with thanksgiving and with offerings. When we, in our hearts, recognize that God is worthy of our worship, and he is greater than all, and he has all power and authority, that's got to be our response from our heart, when our hearts recognize that. So he continues after he sets a stage reminding us who God is, he continues and says in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The psalmist calls us to worship and bow down, so to kneel before the Lord, our maker. The word worship here literally means to bow down and prostrate oneself before God as a sign of reverence. It's a call to recognize who God is and who we are. Before the Lord, we are as nothing. That's how superior he is. We're supposed to respond in humility, not in pride. So when we speak of worship, we're talking about this. We respond to God in worship when we see who he is. We want to magnify him and give him the glory and honor that is due him. So one of the things that we do, one of the ways we do that is we sing songs. We sing songs giving him that glory and honor, singing of his majesty and all the wonders that he has done and all of who he is. But the psalmist, after saying worship, which means to basically bow down and prostrate, he says then to bow down, which seems kind of repetitive. Um, It's a slightly different word that literally means to bend the knee, to sink to one's knees and kneel in reverence. And he then repeats again, he says, then we are to kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
And what we're seeing here, again, is there's internal, like we're bowing our heart, we're coming before the Lord and responding in humility, recognizing who He is, and we're also externally called to bow before the Lord. We worship the Lord, humbly come before Him, we see His majesty and His glory, and our hearts respond in worship. But it also acts out physically. We have physical, external things we do in worship. And bowing and kneeling before the Lord are one of those things that we're encouraged to do in Scripture, just like singing. We sing as an act of worship in response to the revelation of God. And we kneel as an act of worship in response to the revelation of God. So we're going to come back to Psalm 95. We're going to jump somewhere else for a moment, um, and we will finish Psalm 95 out. But I want to take a moment to explore this internal and external worship idea by looking at a few other scriptures. The idea of internal and external shouldn't be unfamiliar to anyone here who is familiar with the Bible. But I want us to just look at this idea a little bit. Turn with me to the book of James. We're going to read in chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verse 14, it says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body... Without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. You can't just say, I believe in my heart, and then not do anything about your faith. It's not how it works. Works don't save us, but if we say we have faith but no works, James says our faith is dead. He says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. And Jesus also says in Matthew 7 that we're going to be known by our fruit, there are actions that come from the faith that we have. Matthew 12, Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Internal heart change always leads to external change. Always. When we are saved, do we keep doing all the things we did before? We don't. We are dead to sin, Scripture says, and we should not live in it any longer. God has made us a new creation the old is past. 
and the new has come, and that new can be seen in our lives. Amen? So what does this have to do with worship? In a broad sense, everything. As a new creation, we have to respond in worship. It's what we've been created to do. But for the purposes of what we're focused on this morning, I want everyone to see that things in our heart should lead to outward action. Things in our heart should lead to outward action. So the question then becomes, what are those actions? What are those actions when we worship the Lord? And so your answer for when we sing together or how you worship when we come together might depend on how you were raised or maybe how expressive of a person you tend to be. Some of us are more expressive than others. Maybe what kind of a church, <laughs> what kind of a church you grew up in or have been in. It might be one way or the other because of good or bad experiences you had with people who worshiped in a certain way. But what I want us to do as a church is look at Scripture and see what Scripture says about how we are to worship because we want to worship God rightly in ways that He says honor Him. Amen? Amen. So, we already saw in Psalm 95, singing, shouting, kneeling, appropriate and encouraged responses in worship. Um, I think that you could argue that not only are they appropriate, they are things that we are called to do. But we want to look at some other scriptures and just see some different things uh, about worship. So in First Chronicles chapter 16, there's an awesome psalm of thanksgiving. We're not going to read it. It's, it's fairly lengthy. But in verses 28 and 29, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in His holy array. So they're singing, they are ascribing to the Lord, and the term offering that is found here means a gift or a present or an offering to God. Giving is an appropriate act of worship when we come together. And so I think I forgot to mention that earlier today, actually. But uh, now that I'm reading this, there are offering plates in the back of the room. And I know a lot of you give online. But at any point, you can go in the back of the room and you can drop an offering in that plate. Um, but giving is an appropriate act of worship. When we worship, or as we worship and recognize how great God is, we respond by physically giving our tithes and offerings to Him. It's an external act of worship that comes from our heart. Um, we're going to jump around the Psalms for a little bit here. You can turn to Psalm 149. Psalm 149, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing. Let them sing praises to Him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people and He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. So, in this scripture, along with singing, 
we see dancing is an appropriate response. We are commanded to sing and praise His name and rejoice, and He says, let them praise His name with dancing. This one probably makes some of us uncomfortable. Um, Because I'm really bad at dancing, it also makes me a little uncomfortable. But it's here in Scripture. Um, It says, let them praise His name with dancing. Psalm 150, since we're here, uh, we sang a song written from Psalm 150 earlier. In Psalm 150, we're commanded to praise Him with all sorts of instruments. It goes on, praise God in His sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty expanse. It says, praise Him with a trumpet, with the harp and the lyre, with timbrel and dancing, with stringed instruments and pipe and cymbals and resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So we're commanded to praise Him with instruments. Um, Turn to Psalm 63. Verse 3 of Psalm 63 says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. So in, in this psalm, David, as he is praising God with his lips in song, he says he will lift up his hands. Turn to Psalm 28. In verse 1 of Psalm 28, it says, To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. So in crying out to the Lord and asking God to hear him, David lifts up his hands towards the sanctuary. His heart is troubled, so he turns to worship and cries out to the Lord for help and lifts his hands. Turn to Psalm 134. We're going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 134 says, Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Turn over to Psalm 141. Psalm 141 in verse 1 says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And just a couple over to Psalm 143. And in Psalm 143, as David is feeling crushed and overwhelmed, he cries out in worship and in song. And he says, starting in verse 5, I remember the days of old, I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. 
and my soul longs for you as a parched land. And for the sake of time, I'll just read to you a few more scattered verses. You can write down the references if you want to go back and look at them. In Nehemiah 8, 6, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Lamentations 3.41, let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. And 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So there are more verses, there's a lot of them in the Psalms, um, that we, where we see examples of people lifting their hands in worship. I think looking at more would be redundant at this point. Um, so far this morning we've seen singing, shouting, dancing, instruments, kneeling, giving, and lifting of hands, all as ways to express our worship when we come together. Looking closely at those scriptures, I think there are definitely commands all over scripture to sing, and the rest of these seem to be uh, less commands and more encouragements or examples. So you can't say, I can't tell you, if you aren't raising your hands when we're singing, that's wrong. Okay, that's not what Scripture says. Uh, we are commanded to sing, um, but we're also encouraged to express ourselves in these other ways. Let people do this. Lift up your hands. Um, they are entirely appropriate and biblical responses in worship that we are encouraged to do. And we're not commanded to lift our hands, but in that one I think uh, not only are we encouraged and is it appropriate, I think it makes sense, at least for a lot of us if you think about it. If we think of how often we use our hands to express ourselves, in all sorts of different situations, sometimes we get excited or nervous or upset or overwhelmed, passionate, our hands do a lot of talking. Some of you more than others. Some of you are real hand talkers, and when you start going, your hands are going all over the place, and you talk with your hands. When we are receiving a gift or asking for something, you know, we hold our hands out, right? When I'm in awe of something, I've climbed a, a big old mountain in a national park or something, I'm just like, wow, and I'm in awe, like, like my hands. I just, I just go out like that it, as a response. Our hands up is a sort of universal sign of surrender, right? Um, and if you're in the courtroom, a, a hand up is what we do when we're swearing that testimony is true. And if I were to ask for volunteers, people would be raising their hands. These are all things that we use our hands to communicate, right? And these are all things that as we sing to the Lord, we're often communicating. So in that, in that sense, it makes sense. As we sing... It seems it would be natural to include our bodies and our hands in that act of worship. God's left us, in his word, many commands about how to worship him, along with encouragements and examples for how to express it, and I think that is a beautiful thing. So in a moment, we're going to return to Psalm 95 and look at the heart, but I just want to offer a couple more thoughts on those external things before we get there. So first... I, we don't want to work ourselves up 
to dance or raise our hands or, or just get excited for the sake of getting excited. Worship, as I said earlier, is a response to revelation. We don't get excited just to get excited. We want to sing and shout and make a joyful noise because we see the beauty and wonder of God and the gospel. So when we come to worship, we're, we shouldn't be focusing on the external things. We should be focusing on God and letting our worship come out of our heart in that way. So secondly, we can't measure genuine worship by people raising their hands or dancing or loud shouts in the congregation. There are those who are going to do this as an expression of love and joy that they have for the Lord, and that is awesome. And there are people that are more reserved, and that is okay. My encouragement to those of you who are very expressive would be not to look down in any way on those who are not. And to those who are not expressive, my encouragement to you would be to simply look at God's Word and make sure that to the best of your ability, you are worshiping God with all that you are. We want to worship God um, as best as we can with all that we are. So if you are a very reserved person, I encourage you to just meditate on some of those things. And also remember, um, for everyone, anything can be done as a show. You don't want to judge worship by what you're seeing from people. I remember many years ago seeing a young man, he was dancing and lifting his hands and passionately worshiping at a service, and I found out he went straight from there to commit a terrible act, a terrible sin, and um, it was all a show. He might have been emotionally excited, but, but uh, his heart was not walking with the Lord, and the heart is important, which is why we're going back to it in a moment. And third, remember the context of the moment and the songs that we sing together. Dancing might be entirely appropriate if we're singing a song of rejoicing or celebration, but probably not appropriate when we're singing a song of repentance or surrender, right? Um, you're up here dancing while we're singing about repentance, and it is probably not going to fit the mood of what we're doing together. We're supposed to worship God with reverence and awe, and there may be songs where shouts are appropriate and other songs where it doesn't fit what we're doing as we are quietly or reverently singing to the Lord. And finally, remember that we do this together. We must consider our brothers and our sisters around us. God doesn't want us to come in and forget about each other. We are worshiping together. This is corporate worship, not personal private worship on Sunday mornings. This is corporate worship. Um, sometimes the expressiveness that we break out into um, as individuals, may serve to, instead of aid our brothers and sisters in worship, it might sometimes serve to distract them instead. Before my family moved to St. Louis many, many years ago, I remember we went to a large church for a little while, and there was a, a woman who started sitting in front of where we normally sat. I mean, we're all creatures of habit, right? We tend to sit in the same spot, and so our family would always come in and sit in the same area, and, and this, uh, this woman started sitting a few rows in front of us, and she danced and moved her arms around so sporadically all the time that uh, we couldn't sing. We were so distracted, we couldn't sing, and, and we had to 
find a different spot, and what we found was actually a large, everybody gave her a large berth, and nobody sat behind her or around her because they were so distracted by what she was doing. Um, we don't want to be distracting others in a way that hinders their worship. When we worship, we come together. It's not about you or me lifting our songs to God by ourselves, but about us lifting our voices together in worship. So we don't want to be a hindrance to our brothers and sisters. So having covered um, enough for this morning on, I think, those external expressions in worship, I want us to go back to Psalm 95 and talk a little bit about the internal. Through these 11 verses, let's go back there to Psalm 95. Through these 11 verses, the psalmist is drawing our attention to the beauty and wonder of God because worship is a response to revelation. If you look at what he says, he refers to the Lord as the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation, church, a true understanding of this, a a true understanding of the gospel will always lead to worship. God is a perfect and just and holy God, and he is the source of all goodness and love, and we are sinners who turned from him in rebellion, choosing our own way instead of God's way. We broke his law and we sinned against him, and that sin demands punishment, and the punishment for that sin is death. But in his grace and mercy, God sent Jesus, right? He sent Jesus not because we deserved it, but because of his great love for us, that while we were still sinners in rebellion against God, Jesus died for us. He took our punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved from hell and given heaven. Is that great news, church? It is great news. Is it good enough for you to shout joyfully to Jesus? Amen. It should be. The psalmist draws our attention to God, the rock of our salvation. He draws our attention to God's greatness. He says there's no one like him, as we've already talked about. And he reminds us that we are his, the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The psalmist is reminding us, he's reminding you this morning as we read it, that God indeed cares for us. God indeed cares for you. He takes care of us, he guides us, and he doesn't leave us. We are his. We belong to him. And just as a shepherd watches over and cares for his sheep, providing them with everything they need, God takes care of us and provides us with everything we need. And just like the sheep, we are dependent upon God. So the psalmist is revealing to us and reminding us who God is, reminding of us of our need for him, and that should lead our heart to worship, right? When we see the beauty and wonder, what other kind of response is there? Well, he actually goes on to describe another response. Starting in verse 8, at the end of verse 7, he says, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. And for 40 years I loathed that generation, and I said, They are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. 
Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So what did the people of Israel do in the desert? They turned from the Lord. They had hard hearts and they didn't want to worship him. They didn't want to worship him rightly. They complained. They rebelled. Even after all God had done for them. Even after the miracles they had seen him do in Egypt. And what did all of them end up facing? Death. The psalmist is saying, look at God. Look at your salvation. Look at his care for you. And do not harden your heart to this. Do not turn away from him. Worship him. Real worship starts in our heart. Not a hard heart that turns away from God and treasures other things above him. But our hearts so easily do this, don't they? They do. We create so many idols and things to treasure above God. And if you look at the landscape of the church in our country, it's easy to see this. It's easy to see it if we look at our own hearts. We see across America that for some, patriotism has taken the first place in people's hearts. Patriotism isn't bad, but it shouldn't be first. Family has taken the first place. Work has taken the first place. Safety and security has taken the first place. Health has taken the first place. If we look into our own hearts, we can see this. We can see that temptation. I encourage you this morning, church, don't harden your heart to God. Don't set things up before Him. He is so much better than all of those things, and so much better than even the good gifts He gives us. He gives us good gifts, but we shouldn't treasure those gifts above Him, because He is better. We want a heart that wants him and cherishes him above everything else. And when our heart is like that, worship overflows and we express it in a physical and an external way. So don't harden your heart to the Lord this morning, church. Do not harden your heart. See his greatness, see his beauty, see his love, see his power and authority. Don't be consumed by all the other stuff going on in your life and the trials and the stuff going on in the world. Recall the wonders of what God has done. Recall the wonders of what he has done for you. Yield to him. Bow before him and surrender those closed-off areas that you want to stay in control of. Let him shepherd you and care for you and let go of them so he doesn't have to break your legs. That's what shepherds would do with sheep that kept wandering off, right? And that's painful. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus, I also encourage you, don't harden your heart. Salvation is offered to you. It's offered to you right now. It's offered to you this morning. The response that God requires to this gift of salvation that he has given is that you acknowledge your sin, repent, and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sin of unbelief and turn to God in faith to follow him the rest of your days. So in conclusion, my prayer for us this morning is that we would gaze upon the beauty of God together and that we would see the beauty of the gospel and salvation that would lead us 
to worship. I desire to see all of us worshiping with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I want us to look at our lives and worship in the light of Scripture and say, Lord, conform me to your ways. Don't conform me to my thoughts and opinions. Don't conform me to the way I was raised. Don't conform me to like this or that. Conform me to your word and what you have for us, Lord. That we would come into his presence and express our worship in biblical ways. And that we would honor and love each other well, serving each other as we worship God together. And of course, that most importantly, God would be honored with our praise and our worship because he is worthy of it all. If you would stand, we're going to pray. And we're going we're to sing a little bit together. Lord, we want to give you the honor and glory and praise that you deserve. And we recognize that this is such a hard thing to do when our hearts are captivated by other things. And so we ask for your help this morning. God, turn our eyes and our hearts to you. Please forgive us of our sins. We confess that Far too often, we set up other things or other people as the first in our lives. We worship the created instead of the creator. And often our worship is deluded and not wholehearted. So we ask that you would forgive us and turn our hearts to you now. We need you, God, to soften our hearts. May we not have a hard heart. May we not be like Israel wandering in the desert. God, take away our desires for anyone or anything else and give us a heart of thankfulness instead of a heart of complaint. Give us a heart of submission instead of a heart of rebellion. Turn us back to you that we may worship you rightly from our whole hearts, God. Help us to see your beauty and your glory that we would respond and worship. You are worthy of all we are. And worship is about giving you the glory you deserve. So help us to do that now as we sing, as we bow, as we lift our hands. Help us to worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.